Hey, y'all. Welcome to All About the Pod podcast with the University of Georgia Peanut Team. I am Macy Wheeler, your host, bringing you real-time updates from our scientists, extension specialists, extension agents, growers, graduate students, and everyone in between. Good morning. Welcome back to Episode 7 of All About the Pod. We have some returning guests this morning. We also have a new guest, Dr. West Porter, if you want to introduce yourself. Yep, thanks. I'm Wes Porter, an extension specialist, ag engineer, covering irrigation, precision ag, machinery, just some of those different areas. So thanks for having me this morning. Yeah. So a couple of or the last episodes, we've gone over grade and yield. What are some things that have impacted? Um, you can answer that question as well, but just mainly wanting to see what are some things that you've seen this year that going into next year we really need to be watching. Yeah, that's a good question. A good thing to think about. Um, this year was a little bit, I say different. We really look back um, the past few years, we've kind of gotten into a pattern where I felt we've gotten really hot and dry around the planting until mid to late June timeframe. This year is probably characterized as we got planted, we're all right. And then all of a sudden we kind of turned hot and dry. And there's been, um, I'm not going to say a misconception, but for the longest time we've been told don't irrigate peanuts the first 40 days uh, after planting. And so that's kind of where we're stuck and what we think about is um, we're in those 40 days we don't irrigate. I get a lot of calls from agents every year. You know, I just planted these, but I noticed, you know, we haven't had rain for the first three or four weeks. You know, what do I need to do? Typically, I was told not to irrigate these. And I think some of that was is years ago, we had a tendency to either over-irrigate. We're getting ample rainfall and we felt like we were hurting the root development system and some other things. And so now um, when we look at a year like we had this past year, I think we need to really consider where our weather conditions are, where we're at. If we're hot and dry like that, we do need to irrigate those peanuts early. We do have water use occurring early. Um, we've been dry into planting. It's obvious that we need to either pre-irrigate or irrigate not too long after we put those seeds in the ground. But once that plant starts to emerge, we don't need to let it sit there for that first month, especially if it's hot and dry. And also, let's look at the end of the season for just a minute and talk about it. Um, we got excessively wet or what I call excessively wet after about mid to late June, all the way in through most of August, I think I would say, um, it rained and rained and rained. It felt like, um, it rained every day, uh, throughout about the month of late July into August and wondered if it was ever going to stop. And it sure has, um, it's, it has not rained very much at all this fall, two or three appreciable events, I think since September mm-hmm. or, or late August, early September. And so I think at the point we had done some um, done some maturity clinics and some trainings and stuff. I've done those with Scott and uh, some others of us, and we were making recommendations. I was at that time. We probably don't need to irrigate our peanuts anymore. And I, I was really wrong at that time because what happened was about a week or two after that, it stopped raining and it's, it's turned really low humidity and no rainfall throughout the end of the season. And so we had to kind of correct for some of that and think about late in the season, do we just stop irrigating those peanuts? And the answer to that is no. If we're not getting rainfall, peanuts are a crop that are still using water all the way up until we really full maturity and even pass if we left them in the ground. But what we need to think about is when we're approaching maturity, what our weather conditions look like, and when is an optimal time for terminating the irrigation on them. But don't sell yourself short on it. You know, don't irrigate up until the day before digging. But at the same time, I had a lot of calls this year. Hey, it's Monday. He's talking about seven to 10 days from optimal maturity. Look at the long-term forecast. And we're saying no rainfall at all. Should we irrigate those peanuts another time or two? And the answer to that is definitely yes. So that that just takes, I mean, isn't that, you know, when we put out a recommendation, I think people get kind of messed up on that. When we put out a recommendation, they take that whole, I mean, they they take it a hundred percent as this is the way it's going to be, but that's in a typical situation. 
where we get intermittent rain, intermittent rainfalls, or or temperatures are not that hot. I mean, it's it's more of your middle of the line. I mean, there are extremes, and those extremes need to be taken care of. We've got to, Scott, you're dead on. Um, the UGA checkbook irrigation method is a prime example of that, right? That's that's based on a historical average, you know, typical year. And so we can't just say that this is word and this is done. What we have to do is be reactive to any of the recommendations that are out there and look at what's happening in the current situation. Again, go back to this year. We got to the end of the season. We thought we were about done, but then it, it stopped raining. So we can't just quit. We can't sell ourselves short. We got to say, all right, it stopped raining. We have every long-term forecast that keeps coming out. We add a day to that 10 or 14 days. It's zero to 10% rain. That's it. That's it. That's it. We got to make a different decision at that point. Yeah, I think growers started digging those first peanuts. And when they started first digging those first peanuts, they just quit. Now, I'm not saying that's everybody, but I saw a large percentage of things that when they started digging and started defoliating, they just quit irrigating the other, the later crop. And that's, I think that was a little bit of a mistake also. I, I would agree with that. I think typically what happens this time of year, um, and I thought it was even predicted this year, um, we've got Bob here and he's our weather guy. Just kidding. We had to have a little bit of a laugh, but... This year we had that soil. Yeah, I thought I was. He's yeah. El Nino. El Nino. El Nino is not soil. So we, you know, we had Bobby Ian moving in. Yeah, really. You know, which one is it? I don't know. I get confused, right? <laughs> but we had Ian moving in, and everybody panicked a little bit. And we thought excessive rain's coming. We get into the digging. Scott just said we get the digging mindset, and we say, all right, typically we're going to get either some tropical storms or sporadic showers. We're starting to dig our peanuts. We don't need to worry about production anymore. But guess what? Peanuts that still weren't mature are sitting in the ground just drying, 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 drying. And I've heard a lot of stories of guys having to go back. They kind of forgot about them so much. Now we're having to irrigate, pre-irrigate just to dig them, right? Mm -hmm. So we've had that happen. And we should have never let ourselves get in a situation I mean, where we've occurred yield loss because we stopped irrigating too early and kind of forgot about that. I know it's easy to do. We get in harvest mindset, 10,000 things going on, right? We're trying to defoliate cotton. We're trying to dig peanuts. We're trying to stage stuff where we can get back and get this harvested on this day versus that. <laughs> And irrigation is the last thing on our mind. But in a year like this, it's different standing out there. Let's not leave anything on the table because how of that. How many growers, and I think every one of us could say this, is um, how many growers did you talk to who wanted to irrigate and they were watching that hurricane come up and the track was supposed to go right through us. And when we didn't get any rain out of it, you would go and visit their field and the peanuts are, are wilted. I mean, that's that's a good indication. You know, that's that's another indication that they're trying to make the right decisions on mm -hmm. irrigation, but late season irrigation, especially if you don't get the rainfall that you anticipated, can have significant effects on, on what you do and what you don't. And I, I know we all talked to growers who said, I wish I'd irrigated, but I didn't because I was watching the weather forecast. What are you going to do? Three days prior is showing us hitting dead center South Georgia, almost coming right. up by 75, and you don't want to risk putting out half an inch, three quarters of an inch, and then sitting six inches or eight inches on top of that. And we and we were sixty percent humidity before the storm, and then when the storm comes through, it dropped to 30, 35 percent, and we dried out. Oh, man. <laughs> it went quick. Hey, I, can I bring something up since you were talking about early season water, and Scott and I have this discussion every year mm -hmm. about uh, this is a good place to since we were talking about right, right. is the is the cold water shock and mm -hmm. and the need to activate residual herbicides. From my opinion, from my perspective, you know, when we're planting our plots, we'll, we'll start planting in late April and go to the first part of May. It's, I do this, I've done this for 24 years. We'll plant, I'll spray, and I'll put, put a half inch on either that day or the next day or as soon as I can. Hopefully it's on that same day yep. or the very next day to get those residual herbicides activated. 
But my agronomist colleagues, Scott, and the previous ones are always concerned about cold water shock. And I don't, I don't know if I subscribe to that theory. Well, or not. you know, I would argue, I would argue. Now, there's two sides of that. Now, if we're cool and wet, I don't necessarily see that shock as much, right? In cooler temperatures, you know, dry conditions is not as bad as in once we get into May. And if we're 90 plus degrees and haven't had rain for a while, and those soils are dry and hot, yes, there is. That's where I've seen the shock. So I think you're I don't think it's there, the right? other side. I would say if you planted mid to late May or later than that, we've been dry condition, and then consider your your water source at that time too. Like you, I know you a lot of your work in my calling out at Ponder Pond. Y'all pump out of that pond. Right. Pond's going to be a similar temperature just because it's buffered as your soil That's at that right. time. It's not going to change it rapidly. You look at your top two inches of soil. If we're uh, if it's moist or if it's early season, it's not. It's going to buffer that moisture is going to buffer the extreme temperature changes. For like what Scott's talking about, we get later in the season. Let's say that we got behind, and this year we didn't plant our peanuts till June first. We look back at June first; we were pretty hot and dry at that time frame. And so that time frame, we're pumping out of well water that's sitting in the maybe fifty-five to sixty-five degree range. Then it's going to be a concern. Is, is it that? Is it that cold? I I was under the impression that groundwater is sort of a constant temperature it's about sixty degrees around here. Yeah. So and then, and then if it's that temperature, <laughs> what's the temperature? At the at the point of, of at the pivot, and then what's the temperature of the water when it hits the ground? So you're not going to change. You're not going to change it a lot that rapid, just because we're pumping so many gallons so fast. Um, if we look at typical flow rates, um, you may raise a degree or two by the time you get there. I think my concern would be is we're seeing soil temperatures in the hundreds, right? We yeah, sit out and, there, and, and we're not even discounting or or adding the fact that you put a seed in dry, hot dirt and you can't get the water on it for another day or so. Then that does impact the moisture of that seed. And so, and then you throw cold water on top of it, and that's a 25 degree change from 190 to 100 or back, you know, with that water. And so that's that's the only, you know, I've heard that for a long time, but the only place I've ever seen it is late. Yeah. Uh, when that when we're real hot and dry. I think if you're in that condition, my recommendation, I know this is difficult sometimes, but um, if you wait till night, because that soil is dry, right? So the temperature is going to change a lot more rapidly in the soil because it's not being buffered as much. You're, if you go look at your um, soil temperature map or your soil temperature graphs during that time of year, they do this, right? In the, because they're so rapidly changing because it's dry. You could wait till night or evening and start that pivot up middle morning, something like that. When the soil temperature has cooled down some, you're going to change that temperature differential that Scott's so, talking about. So does about. the temp would the temperature of the water change in the soil profile then? It's if we're planting peanuts at two inches, right? And then you're you're watering and then it's got to get to two inches. It's it doesn't get there on that day, right? Right. It has to move. Right. So what happens to the, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, probably a slow change up to it. I think I know where you're getting at. I, I think it's the less concerned than what we what we worry about some most of the time. We don't see it. It's hard to control that experiment to really, you know, really to say this is where we're at. Obviously, we can do laboratory experiments with it and show it, but it's yeah. hard to really, really iron well, it out. It, it's going to vary. Sense. Right. It's you know, like we always talk about. There's always these micro climates. In, in every county and every field, so it, that would be tough to, to yeah. pin, pinpoint down. But my 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 point it always is is I want to get get those residuals activated as soon as possible right. because if we don't, then we're going to get terrible weed control, and that's a whole another. You know, but I mean, of, you know, the, the course of it is if you're hot and dry, it's better to get water in it, plant it, and then come back. Yep. I mean, that's, that is the best. You get better emergence and all, and probably better activation. To be honest with you. Yeah, that's so, a question I mean, it, for you, Eric. As long as we pre-watered half to three quarters of an inch. 
we've showed with our work, at least with cotton, I know it's a little bit different, but peanuts are a little more resilient than cotton, that if we pre-watered even almost up to a, a half to three quarters of an inch the day before, like literally 12 hours before, we had no effect on um, seed emergence and high, actually we had optimal emergence on um, in those hot, dry conditions. And so I would assume that would promote, um, I mean, a, promote activation for your herbicides well, so, too. So right? the, whole, the whole thing about activation of herbicides is, you know, most of our weeds are germinating in the upper two inches of soil. So you have to get that herbicide into that zone. So yeah. if you're, if you don't water and it's underneath it already, it's, you, it's not really, you're not taking it from the top of the soil down into that zone. Right. So I pre-watering in my mind doesn't, it, it's always better to have moisture and that's you know, no matter what we're doing, but it's better to, you would pre end and post. That herbicide into the germination zone of the weeds, which is in the upper right. two, two inches. We get some emergence from lower, but the majority of, of the weed emergence is from the upper two inches or so. So let's move to Glenn because I know he's got a move. Thanks for that. Thanks. That's, yeah. uh, you know, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. come back to some of that though. <laughs> Glenn Harris extension of soil fertility. Um, but we're dry now, right? We talked a lot about ir- just ir- irrigation. We seem to be dry again. We were pretty dry, got a little rain dry again. And uh, I'm getting a lot of questions right now about you know, is it too dry to soil sample? I don't, I don't get those a lot. In the, sometimes, sometimes it happens in the fall, but um, getting those kind of questions, when's the best time to sample? What depth? Um, I don't know. You take soil sampling for granted, just go out and do it. But uh, there are some, some things you probably want to think about. I'm not so worried about too dry, except for just the fact that it's so dry you can't get a good sample. Um, you know, uh, it, the, the so dry the soil is running back out of the tube. You can't get the right depth, it, that kind of thing. Um, What's your thoughts about fall sampling versus spring sampling? Yeah, so um, great question. I mean, we've always said the recommended time is to take samples in the fall, and the reason is because usually that's when your nutrients are the lower, but probably more importantly, that's when you get the best read on pH. We all know how important pH is, don't we, Dr. Yes, sir. I was going to bring something up about that when you're when you're yeah, after I leave. Yeah, no, uh, even before you go. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, especially to avoid zinc toxicity, you got to have your pH right. So, um, and, and and it gets a little more complicated that because um, on the flip side of that, typically we don't do a lot of our cell sampling until you know we get all through harvest through the holidays. Now it's January, February, and it can be wet. And a wet sample for most labs can cause some problems sometimes with false high readings, and you think you're okay, and you're not. Um, University of Georgia, I looked it up. It's been 10 years ago now. We went to a different method of, of measuring pH, and we think we take a lot of that effect out. So it's not as critical. But still, um, the probably if you can sneak out there and get some more soil sampling done before, before the holidays, the better, I think. It gives you more time to put out your lime. Going to get a better, probably a better reading on pH. Uh, it's just a better time. Plus, getting next to my buddy Bob Kemmerich. I mean, if you're going to take nematode samples, you want to take them before it freezes too. So yeah, but if it's in the one difference, I'm glad you brought that up. Is is Glenn? If it's if it's dry like this, if the soils, if you don't have enough moisture to at least hold that soil together when you hold it in your hand, you're not. not it's a good not right down taking nematodes. No, if it's got to be the temperature got to be right, but if it's too dry, save your time. Better to get better get. You're gonna get a, you're gonna go to false sense of security because you're not gonna find it. You're gonna think you're in good shape. And I don't know if most people take those at the same time or separately. Most of them do. Uh, I think they if they can, they're gonna take. Both if they can dig, yeah, if they're gonna do it. Now, one thing, Glenn, that I I'd always love to ask, mm-hmm. and is the fact that this year, this past year, I saw more zinc toxicity than I've seen in a long time. 
Why is that? I mean, are people just not paying attention to the soil test results or they're just not used to looking over at that zinc level? That's a great question. That's the other part of it. You know, if you take your samples now, you got more time to study them and look <laughs> at them. Uh, you know, we all know that, you know, we get into January, there's tons of meetings and all that. Um, but, you know, simple things you can do is look at your pH and your zinc levels and also your manganese levels. Because, you know, the flip side of that is your pH is too high. We have manganese deficiency. Um, but I, I'm not sure why we're seeing more zinc uh, toxicity. I don't know if it's because of uh, last year's rainfall and or, or the cost of lime, along with all the other inputs is up. Um, we got some new, we, we've seen zinc toxicity on new ground, which is really strange. We clear some trees and then we got right. zinc. I guess it's from when they, something they did 20 years ago before they planted the trees. I, I don't know. Well, that's something um, you see maybe in a cotton field or seen it in a field. Well, I had, Scott, you or remember orchard, that? not a field. I've been at the Ponder Farm now for 20, so over 20 years, and we had a zinc toxicity show up in a field that has never been there before. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, for at least more than 20, more than 20 years that everybody can remember, there's never been pecan trees there. Or, so I have no idea. And I think we saw it in, in, in the distance that would, two trees would be apart. Right. Perfect. So, yeah. and that you could almost make out the road. But it, it was, it was, like I said, 22 well, years I've been working on that farm in that field and never, never have had that problem. And then this year it showed up. One thing that's possible and it took me a long time to realize this was going on is um, we all know that, you know, you raise your pH, it ties up the zinc. I think it also did. So it doesn't show up in the soil sample. So the zinc might've been there the whole time, but you were running your pH is fine. But as soon as that pH gets, Low enough, that zinc will show up. So I, that's oh, the only thing. Because you didn't go out and put a bunch of zinc on that. Oh no, 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 yeah. no! It was actually uh, that particular spot was a a cotton uh, a patch of cotton, and we were actually we had a uh, we had a problem with the picker where some hydraulic fluid. We had a big hydraulic fluid leak, so we were thinking that was from that. And then when I, I took some soil samples, and the pH and the zinc were not where they were supposed to be. And uh, uh, but originally we were thinking, oh, that must be from the because we remembered. I remember there there was a spot out in that field that was not growing anything because there was a massive, uh, you know, Valdez Exxon type of spill out there. <laughs> and, uh, so well, you do you do have to rule out pecan orchards, old galvanized buildings sites, mm -hmm. um, old hog lots. I've seen mm -hmm. high zinc in old hog lots. Okay, I, all those is a galvanized bucket. Don't use a galvanized bucket when you take a soil sample. But once you rule all those out, then you start, you know, wondering how your zinc's got. There. I think this could get you and Wes in here because this is something I've seen. You know, Glenn and I are always talking about the pH thing because you know most folks are going to call that valor damage if if, if they're mad, exactly if right. they're mad yeah, and it's exactly. and it's doesn't even look. I guess you could, but if you really know the difference, they they don't really look that much alike. But one of the problems I'd seen over the years is I go look at fields. I'm like, well, that looks like pH. And like now nah, we grid sample and our PJ pHs are fine. So I wonder if you two might comment on the fact that just because you're grid sampling does not mean you can't have hot pockets in the field that are totally different than where the sample That's is taken. Yeah, I should leave this more up to to, to to Wes and Simmer, but I mean overall grid sampling is is a good thing. Um, I mean we're still working out exactly you know two and a half acre, five acre, one acre that kind of thing. Um, but but you know compared to not grid sampling, if you've never grid sampled a field at all, especially if you take on a new field you've never worked with before, I mean, I really think grid sampling, and of course the other part of that is the variable rate after that. It doesn't help you grid sample if you don't variable rate. And, and, and lime, really, to be honest with you, lime, and then after that, potassium are the two biggest things that I think we can really make some headway and fix. But I'll, 
like yeah. your Wes's comments. Yes, yeah, so Glenn's dead on. The thing about grid sampling is we're moving in the right direction, right beyond just composite samples. But what we're doing, depending, everybody's got a little bit different practice. I've heard things from um, 10 acres, five acres to two and a half acre rotations, depending on consultant, depending on area, depending on farmer, what they're willing to spend, pay, et cetera. So what happens is, is we may overlay that grid. And the problem with a grid sample is it's an arbitrary grid, right? We literally just take a map and we use software to draw that grid on it. So like you said, Eric, um, we're sitting here at this table, perhaps this little, this little weird circle on this table. If we just do a grid over here and we pulled samples like this and that's a hot spot right there, we're going to see an issue right there. We never, we composite from within that grid. And I'm not picking on any of the methods because just like Glenn said, it's moving in the right direction. We're moving in the right direction, starting a grid sample. But the, the method of that, if we do a 10 acre grid and we happen to composite sample around there and don't hit where that spot is, whatever caused it, right? Low spot, high spot, something else going on there, it's going to show up and we're going to miss it. And so that composite sample will say that this is almost good and we still have a hot spot there that we've under overestimated. Well, so. I think sometimes that when we go look at problems and you know we have this soil test results and, and we try to make it more complicated than it is. And if you start at the beginning, which in this case is to me, pH is the beginning, right? It's the beginning of our production. If our pH is bad, everything else is going to be bad the rest of the year, most likely. But but starting even though you've got samples, that does not mean you're you're free of potential pH or other nutrient problem, nematode problem, right? It just because right. you took a sample doesn't and didn't find it. Well, it, it moves us right there. You know, it moves us to, and, and I know with peanuts we don't have this opportunity, but it moves us to want to use yield data. That's my, you know, that's my basis. And if we're starting to see these issues show up, and you could use also in season data. More and more people are talking about that, whether that's satellite imagery, some sort of remote sensing whatever but if we start identifying those hot spots are consistent in the field they're not obviously they're not square shaped like a grid but then we move to a zone sampling strategy that we say all right we know that we have these odd shaped spots then as just what we do you go out to the field and you farmers troubleshooting that spot and say all right why are these spots showing up in the field and they all might be different one might be a nematode problem one might be a ph problem but then we can treat them accordingly because we've now sampled them and saw difference but that, that's moving you know the next step beyond grid sampling and that's yeah, you bring up a good point. That's just a proponent for doing that. Let's start right. being a little more resolute. And we and we still have fields that you know we've gone through. We ain't figured out yet, right? Yeah. I mean, we've got a friend of ours that that has a problem, and we have not quite grabbed it yet. And we looked at everything, but we're continuing. Uh, hopefully, he'll continue to kind of feed information back, and and we'll figure it out. And maybe this will, maybe it's something else. But that's the point, right? We've got to do everything we can to check the boxes. Yeah, process elimination. Yep. You eliminate the ones that you know will cause problems. We didn't find any obvious pH problems in that field, so you move on to something else. Uh, real quick, the other thing, and we probably should have similar with Justice Moore, but, uh, you know, you got to keep costs, too. The biggest yeah. thing I get with that question when it comes to grid samples is, is, is you know, does it make sense to, you know, cost-wise do that every year? And that's a good question. You know, do I move this zone sampling, all those? And we're still working on that. So, yeah. I think it's an individual cost, an individual basis, right? Depending on what your problems are, what you're seeing, what's showing up. But, and that's the size issue too, right? You go back, what the cost, what we want to invest. And I think that's why a lot of guys, if you get new ground, you'll go a little more resolute. Next year, you'll go, if you don't see any problems, right, you'll go more coarse or you'll rotate the grid or something. You're not paying for it every year. We need to rotate like everything else. Start with grids, then go to zones, and then maybe go back to grids every five years and check on yourself, something like that. So, Glenn, I know, are you going to play Yeah, I got that before he leaves real quick. Glenn, you know, we had a, and I appreciate all the peanut team here and some who aren't here, we had a a group from the Gambia come through. It's a small country in Africa uh, and a very poor country, and they were here just, just seeing what we do. 
And one of the things, Glenn, when they were on the, when I was taking them out to see farm is they were all excited and they were noting all the peanut hay that was being <laughs> uh, baled because in the Gambia, the hay to feed the horses, which run the plows can be almost as valuable as the peanuts themselves. <laughs> and they were interested in us baling it, but I also was reminding them or telling them, and they don't think much about soil fertility. They don't understand as much um, that there's a cost when you, remove that hay to feed the animals. And can you, just, just to remind those who are listening in our current price structure and our current, I mean, what's, just as a reminder, I see so much hay being bailed, that's a good thing, but what's the cost and what's the benefit to that? It, I, it, I'll let you go after It that. reminds me of our old colleague, John Ball, and he said, you know, the definition of sustainable ag is leaving the peanut hay on the field. So um, you are removing a, a decent amount of nutrients. Um, not not so much N and P, but K is the one I get concerned because we're going to follow up peanuts with with cotton sometimes, and, and that's you know doesn't help our potassium problems on cotton. Um, and and the value of that hay goes up and down with fertilizer prices, right? So so this year compared to two years ago, that hay is even way more valuable. And I have a, I have two slides that I update every year this time of year is the value of chicken litter and the value of peanut hay, mm-hmm. and we we revised what um, not too long ago how much we think we're removing peanut hay and PMK, but I got to change the fertilizer prices every time, and um, it's it's probably and it gets a little confusing because those bales can weigh between eight hundred twelve hundred pounds and how many are you making and all that, but it's roughly probably about a hundred dollars an acre worth of fertilizer that you're removing today, and and when you remove that hay now. You know, cash flow or feeding needs, those are all real. So, you know, we got to, I mean, I've always been told dry summer, more peanut hay bale, you have less grass hay right. available. Now, if you're going to do summer, good grass hay year, less peanut, I don't know if that's true or not. Now, if you're going to take that hay off and you're going to go back with peanuts, mm-hmm. they better or need to put out some kind of, you know, if they're, if they're on the borderline of, of yeah. where they need to be, I mean, they got to watch that, right? Fertilizing based on removal gets a little tricky because think about it. Um, even if, if you have a lot of, like, for example, potassium in your soil, even though if you remove it, you still may, might be okay. Again, that's where this good soil sampling comes into play because right. that should pick that up. So base everything on your soil samples. That should pick some of that up. The other question I get a lot, too, is they say, well, if I, I remove my peanut hay, you know, I, I lose all my nitrogen carryover effect. And that's actually not necessarily true. Um, you, you get a little effect. We say 30 pounds if you leave it on. You might get, you know, 20 or 10 pounds mm-hmm. of a nitrogen carryover even when you bale the hay. So that's that's a good news because you got the roots down there and you got other, we call them non-nitrogen effects. They're, they're not actually nitrogen, but they give the same effect of having about 10 pounds of nitrogen out there, even if you remove the hay. So uh, there's a lot of things to think about there, but it's a good point, Bob. Um, you know, you are removing um, a decent amount of nutrients, especially K, when you take that hay off. And so, just a final question for you, since you it's already after eight, you got to go. But so, what about you know we we hear people a lot that says, oh well, I don't need to sample my peanut land because or what's going in peanuts because my cotton and all everything was good last year. Well, what what is the situation with that? I mean, the more valuable. It is to solve these potential problems. Is that where we get into trouble? Sometimes? Yeah, I mean, you go to the Midwest, they only got a sample every three years, but we're not in the Midwest. You know? um, we need to sample every year. The two things that can drop the fastest on us, on our sandy, you know, low fertility soils, low pH soils, is, is pH and K. So, you know, uh, you need a soil sample every year to catch those things and your zinc issues because, you know, they're tied in with, you know, 
And, and, and the K issue with cotton, zinc issue with peanuts. I mean, it's, it's a system, right? So you got, you got to look at everything. So it really, and I think most of our growers do that. And our better growers definitely do that example every year because you, you can, we can, we, it's just a fact of life around here on our, on our sandy soil. You can drop pretty quick on pH and, and K in right. one year. Right. And it doesn't hurt to check all the other things too. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. Hey, thanks for having me. I got to take my class to tour a soil lab for part of class. So, Good um, enjoyed it. Thank so, uh, you. Yep. See you. See. So, I know, Macy, we never give you time to talk. <laughs> you you are a student here at the University of Georgia. You're kind of been doing all this background work and getting all this together so that we can sit here and talk. <laughs> you know, but I mean, you've been able to pick up hopefully a lot of things since you've been here. Um, you're going to be looking for a job here soon or deciding what you're going to do with us to go on. I mean, what are what are some of the things that you've picked up over the last year and a half that from a student's perspective that okay. you didn't know or, or maybe Bob can yeah, talk about an about. open-ended question there. Yeah, right? really? I'm trying, I'm trying to give her enough. I can't enough, give you a... I'm trying to give her a, a, a noose with enough rope to yeah. hang yourself, you know. But no, I mean, we just hadn't heard from the student's perspective on this approach of what we're doing right now and just bringing information out. We just want to make sure you're learning yeah. something, right? Oh, I'm definitely learning a lot. So I guess I haven't really spoke on that, but I do have a turf project with Dr. Brian Schwartz, the turf grass breeder here. I'm with Dr. Scott Mumford, the peanut specialist, and then I'm in Worth County uh, at the Extension office. So that is a very open-ended question. I mean, you're doing all this work for us here. What I want to bring out is you're a very unique student. You're not your typical student because you are learning about turf. You're learning about uh, agronomy and peanut, but you're also working. Part of your time is working in Worth County Extension office. So you're getting a little bit, yeah. you're getting a better perspective than most students. Yeah. I mean, and so you have an idea that you've seen some of these problems that we're talking about. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I've learned and the most rewarding thing is I've seen the research start here and then end at the grower standpoint in Worth County. And it makes it, it, it makes the circle connect of what we're doing, that there's a purpose to it. I would yeah. say, and, and I can actually see that our research is helping growers, and and that's the most important thing. That's the whole reason we do it. So, well, good. That's kind of what I want you to say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully you didn't say, "Well, I can't remember anything I've done." So, but no, I just want to give you a chance to talk. Yeah, but I will say that uh, Macy, thank you for. I've had a lot of a lot of people I don't hear from very often. They'll call or they'll message and they'll say, "Well, we enjoyed that," and and good. certainly uh, uh, your efforts to put this together have been been much appreciated. So. Mm -hmm. And the one thing we want to get out of this, you know, me bringing this up, is all of us on the Extension Peanut team, and I, I think the research side as well, but we are all trying to solve problems that, that happen every day. And so I know the students that I have and the students of Wes and, and Bob and even Eric, we are working on problems or things that's coming about right now. I mean, that's what we're doing. And most of those come from the growers. Most of them come from the agents. You know, those ideas or, or we go to the field. And so I, I just want to point out that we are working on things and, and we want more students to get as much experience as we can. Um, and we hope that people, growers in particular, if they've got problems, to come and grab us at these production meetings that's going to start here in January. Yeah, let's advertise that, Scott. In fact, Scott's already, Dr. Mumford's already put the word out. He wants our calendars as far as production meetings. So so two things 
that I'd want the growers listening to to remember is that all the things we talked about and all the things that Macy mentioned, the research, all the efforts, all we've learned, that's going to be put together over the next couple months. And when we start the production meetings and we have the Georgia uh, Peanut Farm Show coming up in January as well, this information will be available and production guides and those. So stay tuned for that. And also things, this has been a terrible year for tomato spotted wolf virus. In fact, that mm-hmm. was uh, when my buddy Scott Brown commented in this. He said, yeah, it's been as bad as he's ever seen since the 90s. Uh, we've got a peanut RX meeting coming up that most of us are involved with. And it's going to be refining our our attack, our, our management of spotted wilt and leaf spot and white mold coming up. Uh, so there's a lot of information that will be synthesized, not only from Georgia, but across the southeast. And all of that will be available to the growers across the southeast, especially in Georgia, in various different formats. So stay tuned. And, and uh, Macy's comments are much appreciated. That's why we do what we do. If it ever comes to a point where you're not interested in what Dr. Prosco has said about weeds or what Dr. Porter has said about irrigation or what I have to say about my Nina, Scott. Yeah. Then, uh, and, we and, always uh, love to I know that's just how it is. But uh, we're in trouble. So and I just wanted to comment what you mentioned about the problems that, that we work on and what we see. You know, even after uh, a long career, every year brings problems. And it's interesting as I find as I get older, you would think at this point I might have seen everything or some of us that are older have seen a lot. But every year there's always going to be things that pop up that, you know, we're like, well, like we're working on now in Tiff Tiff County. We've got a problem we still don't know. And that's Scott mentioned our, our grad students. Every project that my grad student working working on now, I have two of them, are problems that have come up that I didn't have an answer for at the time. So if they come up again, we'll be better able to say, hey, this is what we think is going to happen and this is how we might be able to fix the problem where there is no fix. But there's always going to be problems that, that we come across that we might not know and it might take might take a couple of years before we figure it out. Yeah, and that's, I, don't, I want people to know that, you know, anytime, I think anytime that we have come out to a field um, like this particular one in Tiff County, it's not, we're not, it's not that we don't care or that, you know, that, that we're not trying because we're, we did everything we think we possibly could figure out on this one and we, we probably will keep looking over time. Uh, so it does take time sometimes to, to, you know, to get that answer if we never get there. Um you know, we, we brought in everybody we know to bring in on that. So we still need to sit down and talk about that a little bit more. But that's kind of the way we approach any problem, right? We 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 kind of check the boxes and it goes from one person to one person. One, you know, and if we can't figure it out, we get the next and the next. And so it is important that growers step up and say, I've got a problem. You know, uh, the one thing I hate to hear and I remember it was in early county. I was doing the clickers where I was saying, you know, do we service the county like we should? And we had one person that clicked in and said we had never been on their farm. Well, one, if I don't know who it is, I can't get there. One, if you got a problem, you need me there. There is no, there is no way that me nor anybody else on this peanut team would never say, if you got a problem, I'll be there tomorrow or the next day. It's definitely not going to be next week type of deal unless we're out of town. Uh, but if it's a bad enough problem, we kind of pull and go to the next person and say, hey, can you go look at it? So we work as a team, and we would not shy away from anything in this state. So um, please, if you got a problem, bring it to our attention. Any other past issues going on right this minute? Well, I do want to say that uh, shout out to 
uh, one of the growers in, in uh, Grady County, Mr. St. Elmo, uh, and he is going to be, uh, he's 100 years old this month. This thing, oh, this wow. is his 71st peanut crop. And when I think wow. about farmers around the around the state who inspire us, the ones you just mentioned us, that uh, the Saint's going to be 100 years and uh, 71st peanut, he's been uh, growing peanuts since uh, with his father and his grandfather and, and that area. It's just, uh, it's, it's what makes the job rewarding is the relationships we build uh, with growers, not only at the meetings, but also throughout the season as well. So happy birthday, Saint, as that comes up. Yeah. And as we get more information, we're going to use this platform to start kind of diving deeper into certain things we can't, you know, at production meetings, we, we give as much information as we can in a short period of time. This is going to be a platform that we can spread that out and start to kind of dissect issues. And one I'm going to start talking about a little bit as we go forward is varieties and what we've got coming and some of the things that we've seen with this year and last year. And so trying to provide enough information uh, as we go forward that maybe we are, you know, maybe it's getting through the cracks and we're not getting out there as much as we can. So hopefully we can do that. That wraps up this week's episode of All About the Pod. I just want to say thank you to the extended specialists that came on this morning. That was Dr. Prosco, Dr. Porter, Dr. Harris, Dr. Kimmerite, and Dr. Mumford. And thank you to all the people for listening and all the feedback that I've received. I hope y'all are enjoying listening to this as much as I've uh, enjoyed recording these podcasts. So thank you. (laughs) 